thank you for choosing the podcast of East Haven Baptist Church in Brookhaven, Mississippi. For more information on the ministries of East Haven and to access videos and sermon notes from our services, visit www.easthaven.net. Matthew 13, verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then in verse 36, we find he left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Pray with me. Lord God, we come before you, and we pray that you would speak to us this morning from your word. We pray that you might give us understanding, you might give us wisdom, you might give discernment. Father, we pray that you would challenge us from your word. We pray that the reality of your word would be so near to us and would be so powerful in your speaking to us. And we pray that you would do that for your glory alone. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you go back into the Old Testament, you will find there are numerous prophecies and promises regarding the coming of the Messiah. Now, when we say Messiah, we need to understand what we mean by that. The word Messiah in, from the word in the Hebrew means the anointed one, someone who was anointed and set apart for the purposes of God, empowered by God. They would be anointed with oil. And there were three offices in ancient Israel where one was anointed with oil to be set apart for the purposes of God. The prophet, the priest, and the king. The prophet, the priest, and the king. Each one of those offices entailed being anointed with oil to be set apart for the purposes of God and symbolically empowered by the Spirit of God to accomplish that purpose of God. So you have the prophet, the priest, the king. And that's where we get our word Messiah, meaning the anointed one. That same idea of Messiah, the anointed one, comes over into the Greek language 
And that word that is translated as Messiah from the Hebrew word, it is the word Christos in the Greek. It's where we get our word Christ from. Jesus Christ. Jesus the anointed one. That's what the word Christ means. It's not Jesus' last name. It's, it's a title. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Christ. Christ Jesus. The anointed one, Jesus. And so we find in the Old Testament, there were all, as I mentioned, there are all these prophecies pointing toward the coming of the Messiah. And so in the time of Jesus, we might say, why didn't people recognize Jesus as the Christ? Why did people not recognize him as the Messiah? If you go back and you look at the writings of the time, you find that not everybody believed that a Messiah, a true Messiah, would come back physically. Many did. Those who read the Old Testament and believed in that, they, many of them believed that. Some of them had different interpretations. You had some people, when you go back and you look at the writings of the time, you had some people who said, it's going to be a physical leader. A physical king is going to come back. Or a physical prophet is going to come back who is fully human. There were some schools of thought that said, well, we think maybe he's going to be divine. Maybe God himself is going to send an angel, or maybe God's going to show up in some other way. And of course, no one was expecting Jesus to be born as a little baby and grow up and be fully God and fully man. But one thing that you do find in common with all of these schools of thought who thought there was a Messiah who was going to return, who understood that Christ, the, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ would come back or would show up, they all had one thing in common. They all believed that when the Christ, when the Messiah showed up, that that individual was going to set some things right and establish David's kingdom. Reestablish the kingdom and it would be reestablished there in Israel. And it's in this environment that we find Jesus is preaching and teaching these parables that we find in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew records that Jesus is preaching these parables when he is in the region of the Galilee. He's in an area up north of Jerusalem. And these are not the aristocrats. These are not the movers and shakers who are hobnobbing on the, the limestone pavements of Jerusalem on a daily basis. No, these are, the, these are the, the farmers and these are the craftsmen. These are the villagers. These are the people who make their living by the sweat of their brow. These are the fishermen. And Jesus is in the boat, one of these fishermen's boats, as he's preaching these parables. Now, the people in Galilee, they had really major concerns about Rome ruling over them, which is understandable anytime you're a people and a foreign nation comes in and wants to rule over you, there's some resistance. And if you look back through the history of Israel, you find that there were some people who were just perennial enemies. They just kept showing up again and again. 
And then later on in the life of Israel, you find that the Babylonians are there and the Assyrians are there and they're taking people into exile. And then later you find the Greeks show up and they rule. And then the Greeks give way to the Romans. And at the time of Jesus, Rome is ruling everything with an iron fist. And taxation is high. At some, some people have said it's around 50%. You would plant one field for Rome and one field for yourself. And so it's into, again, this environment with this backdrop that we find Jesus showing up and Jesus preaching in the land of Galilee and he's preaching to these farmers and these fishermen and these craftsmen, these villagers who would be feeling the full weight of this Roman rule. And they're wanting Rome to be kicked out. They're wanting something to occur. They're wanting God to separate out all the people that stand against the kingdom and they want the Messiah to come and reestablish this kingdom. And then Jesus says, let me tell you what the kingdom of God is like. And Jesus preaches this parable to these people who very much want to see the kingdom of God expressed. And they very much want God to do something about the enemies of the kingdom. But Jesus gives them this illustration. And it means that this, this kingdom is operating unlike most earthly kingdoms. Because when an earthly kingdom was established, you know what you would normally do? If you were the ruler, you would come in and you would hunt down Everybody from maybe that family or that opposing group that wanted to rule over. You would want to look at everybody that you were taking power from and you would want to annihilate and eradicate any potential conflict that might arise later. You would be thorough in sweeping the board clean. And yet when Jesus tells this parable, you think, wait, wait, wait. That's not how earthly kingdoms work. Look at what Jesus starts talking about. He's talking about a sower goes out to sow. Now we've looked, we looked at a sower last week, different sower in some ways, but a different seed means something different. Last week we looked at the parable of the soils and we looked at how the word of God is sown and the word of God brings forth fruit when it lands on good ground, on fertile ground. We said it's never a seed problem. It's never a sower problem. It's always a soil problem. And so we find that God has provided us with this understanding through the teaching of Jesus about how this kingdom of God, this kingdom of heaven works. What is the way of that kingdom? But now he shifts and he tells another parable. Here's another sower going out to sow. And yet now there's something else going on. There are some weeds involved. There's clearly some bad seeds involved somehow in this story. So Jesus is explaining how his kingdom works. So here's an important thing to understand. Whenever we read a passage and Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, he's not saying it's like the very next thing that follows. For instance, we find in this The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. And so many times I've heard people say, well, this means God's comparing the kingdom to a man who sows. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God may be compared to everything that follows. 
He's not just saying he's comparing it to a man. No, he's comparing it to what happens, the way, the manner, the operation of everything after that. The whole parable is speaking to this is how my kingdom works. It's not Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is like a man. No, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sows and the enemy comes and sows bad seed. And then that is going to be gathered up in the end time. That's what the kingdom is like. Not just a man, but everything that follows. So with that in mind, and with this backdrop of people expecting the kingdom to be initiated and to be in full force right now, how do we make sense of what Jesus is telling his listeners at this time? Because that's the most important thing we have to do. We have to understand what was Jesus saying at the time and what would be understood by the people at the time. Because if this is something that only we understand today, now, that they don't get, there's a problem with that. They had to be, they got to, they had to understand the overall concept of what Jesus was saying to them then. So we need to understand that. So how do we understand this in our context today as we're living in the kingdom of God if we are followers of Christ? Well, notice the first thing that he talks about. He talks about weeds and seeds and, and, and the, the good crops, the wheat. Weeds are ever-present, so we should expect resistance. Weeds are ever-present. Whenever he's teaching the people at this time, he's telling them the kingdom of God has some weeds. And we go, wait, 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 wait. The kingdom of God is made up of people who are saved. Well, we find that Jesus is showing that we have the visible, the visible kingdom and we have the invisible kingdom. There's the visible kingdom, and it's made up of wheat and weeds. It's made up of goats and sheep. It's made up of believers and unbelievers, and maybe some unbelievers who look like believers. We'll look at more of that in just a moment. But he says that the true kingdom, the way that the kingdom works, is that this field, and we find this, the field is the world. That's what we find. Look down in verse 38. The field is the world, and the good seed are the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So we understand that if the field is the world, and the way the kingdom of God is operating, he's saying that the kingdom of God is in operation, and if we look at the world, we're going to find believers, we find unbelievers. We find people who have, who have followed Christ, surrendered their lives to Christ, and we find people who have not. So weeds are ever-present. Now, he's talking to the people of this time, and they're thinking, well, yeah, we know weeds are ever-present. Rome's all over the place. Rome rules over all things. We find our, the enemies of the kingdom, they're working against us. But this is the understanding. We should expect resistance from the world. As children of God, as followers of Christ, we must expect resistance. I cannot tell you the number of times I talk to people who were shocked whenever they start living for Christ, surrendering to Christ, and they take those, those, those steps of faith and following Christ, and then they're surprised 
that the world is in opposition to them. They act as though this is a mysterious thing. They're shocked. You should not be shocked. Let me tell you how you should, what you should be shocked about. You should be shocked when the world does not resist your stance. When the world does not resist your acts of faith. When the world does not resist your belief in God. That's when you should be shocked. And you might want to check yourself too. Whenever the world does not offer any resistance, you might want to say, why? What's going on? If the world is offering us no resistance when we're living for Christ, it may be a pretty clear indication that we're not surrendered to Christ fully. But the weeds are going to be ever-present. This is what we find in this passage. So we should expect resistance. Listen to John chapter 15, verse 18, the words of Jesus. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world hates the things of God. There is no taking the things of the world and taking things of God and marrying them together and meshing them together without any contradiction, without conflict. It doesn't work. Now, let's understand what we mean by this. Does this mean that we are to hate people of the world? And does it mean that we are to hate those who are outside the faith? And does that mean I'm not going to have anything to do with any of those people who are outside of the faith? I'm just not even going to deal with it. No, that's not biblical. We are to go and make disciples of all the nations. We are to go and make disciples. We are to love the world in the way that Christ loved the world. We want to see the world redeemed. We want to see people come to Christ. We want to see people brought out of that darkness and brought out of their sin and brought out of that shame of sin. And then we want to see them brought into God's kingdom. We do. But it means that we are not of the world. If we aren't careful, people within the church can operate as good sanitized people who are known by the things we avoid. That's not living for Christ. I've talked to to an individual at one point in time, and this is what he told me. He said, you know what? I never have anything to do with anybody who is not of God. And I said, you ever talk to people about Jesus? He said, no. He said, no, he wasn't at our church. He said, you, you know what? If, if people want church, they know where we are. I said, can I just tell you? The word of God says we are to go and make disciples. And he says, well, that's your job. And that's missionaries' jobs. It's not my job. Yes, it is. It's your job. In fact, it's the only reason you're still here. And so I was trying to talk to this individual about, you know what? You've got a warped perspective. It's not a matter of you get saved and then nobody had, you don't have anything to do. You don't talk to, you don't talk to sinners. You don't go and try to win them to Christ. You don't have anything to do with them because I, and I reminded him, you were once a sinner. If it were not for somebody reaching out to you, you would still be lost in your sin. And if you have the attitude, I didn't add this, but I wanted to say, and if your attitude is, that's not my job, the question remains as to whether or not you are, might still be in your sin. If you do not care about lost people, if you don't care about the kingdom, if you don't care about the gospel based on the word of God, you may need the gospel applied for the first time in your life. 
That's the honest truth. So here we have weeds are just ever present. They are. So what are we to avoid? Well, the Bible's pretty clear. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 16. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Wait a minute. What are we talking about here? We're talking about weeds involved with the wheat. And Paul is saying there are some people who may be within the church itself who may be causing divisions and teaching false doctrines. He's like, avoid them. They're teaching doctrines that are opposed to what the word of God says. Avoid them. Now, I know that sounds really hard. Here's what we have to understand. We have to understand in every church, there are people who are saved and there are people who are not. And there are some people who may not be saved who may think they are. That is frightening. When I was in Wyoming uh, back in back last August and I was up there with a bunch of pastors, we were sitting around uh, eating a meal and there was a, a guy there who was a pastor. He was formerly a pastor in Miami and now he was pastoring in Birmingham, he's pastoring in Mobile. So he was from Miami, went to Mobile. There was another pastor who was pastoring in Seattle and who had moved to Houston to become a pastor. And as we were sitting there, these two gentlemen were commiserating. Well, you know, Mobile, Mobile, there in the Bible Belt, it's so easy. It's just so easy to be a Christian. I just find it really, really hard. I find it, I find it so hard. I miss the challenge of Miami. And the other guy said, oh, I know what you mean. Because in Seattle, oh, Seattle, you know, in Seattle, if you're a Christian and you're living for Christ, you recognize that people are going to think you're really weird. And it's, it's really easy to know if somebody's really living for Christ in Seattle. And, and then I moved to, to Houston and everybody's praying for you in Houston. And it seems like everybody says they love Jesus, but there's all this other weird stuff going on in their lives, but they say they love Jesus. And they were both talking about just how, how grieved they were because it's so easy to be Christians in Mobile and in Houston compared to Miami and Seattle. And so I spoke up and I said, do you realize that it, you are reaching a harder group of people in Mobile and Houston than you could ever imagine? And they said, well, that's not true. I said, oh, yeah, it is. I said, because you've got people who grew up with cultural Christianity, thinking if I just go to church and if I just give and if I just do these things and check the boxes, then I'm okay with the Almighty. I said, in Miami and in Seattle, that you know who's who because they're making genuine sacrifices and everything that they are giving up in order to follow Christ is really clear. I said, the lines in Mobile and Houston aren't exactly the same. I said, gentlemen, maybe God has prepared you in Miami and in Seattle to take your next step of difficulty in Houston and in Mobile. And they just looked at me like I was speaking a foreign language. No, I don't think that's true. It's just way, they, one of them said, no, no, it's just too easy to be a Christian in these places. And I said, it's too easy to adopt the name without having the lifestyle that follows. It's too easy to have the title 
without having the surrender that is required to truly be a Christian. I said, guys, you are placed in one of the hardest mission fields you could ever imagine, and that's the American church. It's the hardest mission field. It is. Billy Graham made a statement one time where he said he believes about half the people who came forward at his crusades probably were not truly saved. Billy Graham is saying that? Billy Graham is saying that. For goodness sake. So we find that weeds and wheat are coexisting. We should expect some resistance. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. <laughs> we find Paul writes, why are we surprised? Why are we surprised that some people appear to be Christians and they're, they're putting on the good face and they're putting on the good show and yet they do not know Christ? He's like, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. It should be no surprise when those who follow him do the same. So we find that weeds are ever present, so we should expect resistance. But here's the next thing Jesus shows us. Weeds are not always immediately identifiable. So we examine ourselves Look at verse 28. He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then what do you want us to do? Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Don't, don't, no, don't go tear up the field trying to get rid of all of those who are the weeds. No, leave them. And, and by the way, they're not easily identifiable. Not immediately. Most scholars say that the weed that is talked about here may be a form of of plant called a darnel. And a darnel looked like wheat. If you were to plant a grain of wheat next to a darnel seed and watch them, as they grew, they would sprout. They both looked the same. They'd get a little taller. They'd both look the same. They get a little taller and you say, they both look the same. And then as the harvest would draw close, the wheat would produce the fruit. The wheat would produce the seed head. The head of the wheat with all the grains, the darnel would not. And it was only as the fruit began to be produced that you would be able to recognize, "Uh uh-oh, wait a minute, we got this darnel in here. For an enemy to sow darnel seeds among your wheat was to basically try to devastate your endeavor and to totally ruin you financially, to totally ruin you so far as your well-being because now you've got to go in and deal with the weeds and the wheat. So it's not always immediately identifiable. That's why we should test ourselves. That's why we should test everything. That's what the Bible says. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. How do you test the spirits? By the word of God. I've talked to people before and they're like, well, I'm just testing the spirits and I just don't feel that's right. You can't depend on your feelings. You go by the, you go by the word of God. What does the word of God say? And if we have teaching and you look at the word of God, you say, what does the word, that's the ultimate authority. What does the word say? It's not how I feel. It's not how I think. 
It's not a publicity or, or a popularity contest so far as what the truth is. No. What does the word say? That's what we go by. Listen to Matthew 7, verse 21. There are those passages in the Bible that are just, I read them and it just makes me shudder because of just, they're so fearful. Matthew 7, 21, and rightly so. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Notice what he says in verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, many people will say, but look at all we did, God. Look at all we did by your power. Look at all we did in your name. Surely that counts for something. And he says, I never knew you. Not I knew you and you fell away. Not I, I knew you and you were close and then you became a problem. No, he said, I never knew you. You were never part of my family. You were never part of my kingdom. You were never one who was following me. Even though you may have done all these things in my name, that does not gain you acceptance into the kingdom. Only through the righteousness of Christ applied to our life. Only by the gospel does that happen. It doesn't matter what else you're showing. You have to have that relationship. It must be present. It doesn't matter if we, many will say it, maybe it'll be something like this. Many will say in that day, well, Lord, didn't I always go to church? Lord, didn't I, Lord, didn't I serve in this way? Lord, didn't I, didn't I sing in the choir? Didn't I serve on this committee, Lord? Lord, didn't I, Lord, didn't I always read my Bible every day? Lord, didn't I take my kids to church? Lord, didn't I, didn't I do all these things? God, God's like, hey, listen, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if you don't have a relationship. And then that relationship produces the fruit. That's what produces it, the relationship. That's when we do examine ourselves. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? He says we should examine ourselves. We should look at our lives. We should make sure that we're bearing fruit for the kingdom. And he says, don't you know Christ is in you? And he goes, and if Christ isn't in you, then you're not in the kingdom. So many times over the years, I have talked to people who will say something like this. Well, I know I'm a follower of Christ because I made a decision at, at this point in time. And my question is always, so what changed? What changed after that? How are you growing into the likeness of Christ? What's going on with you? I had a gentleman come to me one time and he said, um, I, I don't know if I'm saved. And you know where I started? I started with, have you ever made a decision? Yes. Here's our problem. So many times we just leave off there. Have you ever made a decision? Yes. Well, then you're good. No, not according to the Bible. Because we can say that, but where are we today? There's no saying I like to use that present position is more important than past profession. You can make a profession. You can say, Lord, Lord. But if there is no present position that has changed, then there's a problem. Your present position is more important than your past profession. I've talked to people who are like, I know I'm okay with God because I made a decision back when I was a kid. How did things change? Well, things really didn't change. No. They have to change. 
You cannot have Jesus for your salvation in the sense of justification. You can't have him for your salvation and then not have him for your sanctification. He finishes the work that he begins. And if you say, well, I'm, I'm just exactly the same as I've always been. Either A, you are immature, or B, you're really not saved. Because true salvation will result in you growing. And if you're immature, God is dealing with you on a regular basis to grow you and to mature you in Christ. That's the, that's the standard we find in the Word of God. But that means that the weeds aren't immediately identifiable. Sometimes that takes time. You find in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, listen to, and if you, if you read through 1 John, 1 John is just a series of tests as to whether or not people are truly within the faith. That's what the, the whole book of 1 John is, just a series of, of tests that you can read through. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. And you may say, well, wait, I, I do sin. No, but is that the habitual mark of your lifestyle? Is your life marked by habitual, unrepentant sin? If you can live your life marked by habitual, unrepentant sin, then based on the word of God, and this isn't the pastor casting judgment, based on the word of God, that person does not know Christ. If you can continually live in habitual, unrepentant sin with no pain of conscience, no discipline from God, this is what God's word says. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice, has a habitual lifestyle of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning. You can't. Now, now I know you're like, but, but I do sin. We all sin. I'm saying, biblically speaking, that word means a habitual, unrepentant lifestyle of sin. Well, I'm just going to keep on doing this because I know God understands. Can I just tell you, that's habitual, unrepentant sin. And according to the word of God, you can't keep doing that if you've been born of God. This is what he says, verse 10. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So there are some tests. If you're living in habitual, unrepentant sin, according to 1 John, you don't know Christ. That's not what I'm saying. That's what he's saying. That's what God's word is saying. It's one of the tests. That's why we have to examine ourselves to make sure that we're in the faith. We have to, we have to do that because that is the most important thing, whether or not we are in the faith. Look at the last thing Jesus shows us. Weeds will ultimately face judgment. So we repent quickly. Look at verse 30. Look at what he says. Let both grow together until the harvest. And then at harvest, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Verse 40, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, throw them into the fiery furnace, in the place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. 
It's very similar to the parable we find just a little bit later on in Matthew 13. Matthew 13, verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into the containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate from the, e- the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Same, same teaching, same principle in, in both of these parables that Jesus teaches in Matthew 13. That there's judgment coming. That there's judgment coming. It's a frightening thing. But, but judgment is coming. And so we, we are to repent quickly because weeds will ultimately face judgment. If we're, if, if we're not of the kingdom, then we are going to face being bundled together and being cast out. That's what the Bible says. That's why we are so passionate about sharing the gospel. We know that everybody will live forever somewhere. You think about that. Everybody you meet, everybody in your classroom tomorrow, everybody at your workplace that you see, everybody in your family, everybody who is here today or listening online, every single person you have ever met will live forever somewhere, either in eternity with God because of the righteousness of Christ applied to their lives because they recognize the fact that they are sinners and they repented and turned to Christ alone or an eternity separated from God in a very real hell. Those are the only two options. Those are the only two options. There's no third way. There's no partial place. No. We will face that judgment. And so we are to repent quickly and notice it happens a little later that's the law of the harvest the law of the harvest that you find expressed throughout the bible spread out in different places different teachings the basic idea is this let me summarize you reap what you sow you reap more than you sow and you reap in a different season than you sow you reap what you sow you sow to wickedness you reap more wickedness you sow to righteousness you reap righteousness you reap more than you sow. No one plants one grain of wheat and expects, boy, I can't wait till the harvest comes. I'm going to have another grain of wheat. No, you expect more. And you know there will be more that comes. So you reap what you sow. You reap more than you sow, and you reap in a different season than you sow. And just because the harvest seems long in its coming, rest assured, it's coming. Why does God wait? Why doesn't God just intervene? Why didn't God just sit down here on Rome and say, I am going to set some things right. Things are going to be different in the Holy Land because I am about to deal with some Romans. Well, it's the same reason that we find that pick any nation that God does not send that full on wrath. Why? Why doesn't he do that to America? For goodness sake. I've been working on, I've been working on a, a, a sermon. I, you know, y'all know I work ahead. I've been working on a sermon for, for July 3rd of this year. Because uh, July 4th is on Monday. I'm working on a July 3rd sermon. I was working on it this week as I was working through this. It's called, Why Should God Bless America? Why should he? Why should he when we're the largest exporter of pornography in the world? Why should he when we have annihilated millions of babies since 1973? 
Why should God bless America? Look, that's a preview. You can look forward to that. Stew on it, get mad, do whatever you want. But anyway, but why should he? What's the only thing that's holding God off? Well, it's our Christian heritage. No, 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 no. We'll talk about that on July 3rd. No, that's not what's holding God's hand back. The only thing that's holding God's hand back is what we sang about earlier. His mercy. That's the only thing that is holding his hand back. His mercy. Listen to what Peter writes. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. Oh, well, God's slow. God's like, I'm not, I'm not slow. I'm right on time. Look at what he says. But is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? The only reason that God has not unleashed the full measure of his wrath upon our nation and the rest of the world is only because God is saying, I'm giving you time to repent. I'm giving you time. I'm not slow. I'm not lax. I haven't ignored anything, but I'm giving you time to repent out of his mercy, out of his great mercy, because he would fully be within his right whenever we oppose him, when we resist him, when we reject him to snuff us out in that moment. But instead, God says, let it be. Leave, leave, leave the weeds among the wheat. I'll deal with it in time. I'll deal with it in time. And he's giving time for repentance to occur. Can I give you another frightening truth? The longer, the longer people go on resisting Christ, rejecting Christ, the longer that goes on, God keeps extending mercy. God keeps extending patience. But at the same time, the wrath is building. I know, that's an, I know that is not a popular statement. But that's biblical. It doesn't matter if it's popular or not. That's biblical. Not only is God saying, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. But at the same time, the longer he waits, the greater the judgment. Because the greater the revelation, he just keeps giving and giving and giving and giving and giving. His mercy says, come to me, come to me, come to me, come to me, come to me. And every time we say, no, 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 no. Then our responsibility, our understanding... That call is increased, 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 and judgment is greater and greater and greater. That's terrifying. That God is extending mercy and grace, yet at the same time as God is saying, every time you say no, every time you say no, every time you say no. We don't get older and smarter. We get older and harder. Every time we say no to God, it's just like another layer of hardness, another layer of hardness, another layer of hardness. Am I saying that God can't break through? Oh, God can. Yes. But I'm saying that we resist him more and more and more whenever we have this overexposure to truth and this under-response to him. We have to examine ourselves. We have to make sure that we're in the faith and we have to repent quickly. If you don't know Christ, can I tell you, repent quickly. Today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. I'm going to get this worked out. I'm going to get that worked out. I had a guy tell me one time, Pastor, let me tell you what I'm going to do. 
He said, I know you talk about knowing Jesus. He said, but let me tell you, I, I want to live my life like I want to live my life. And the way I have it figured is this. On my deathbed, after I've done everything I want to do and live my life like I want to live it, then on my deathbed, I'll pray to receive Christ. That's what I'll do. That's my plan. I'm going to live and get as much of the world has to offer. And then right there on the 11th hour, I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask Jesus to save me. And I said, do you know what you're assuming? He said, what's that? I said, you're assuming that your heart won't be so hard that you can't hear him anymore. You're going to assume. You're going to assume that at that time, you're going to hear the call of God clearly. And you're going to be open to his conviction. I said, and you're also assuming you are going to know when you're going to die. You assume that you're, you know when it's going to be your deathbed. You know, some mornings I get up, some nights I lay down. It may be kind of a morbid thought, but I, sometimes I get up and some days I, I lay down and I think, you know what, the day's going to come. I'm going to get out of a bed and never get back in it, or I'm going to get in the bed and never get out of it. And that's the same for all of us. There's going to be one last day that I spend sleeping. Or there's going to be some time I get in the bed and I never get out. Those, I mean, that's the option. That's the reality. Y'all, eternity is long. And I know you go, well, eternity is eternity. Yeah, I know that. Eternity is long. Sin is serious. Christ is merciful. Don't wait. This is what he says. Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the words of Jesus. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom is at hand. The kingdom's already in operation. The kingdom's been inaugurated. Repent and believe in the gospel. Turn toward Jesus alone. There is nothing that the world can offer you that will even compare to the glory and the splendor and the riches of heaven. Nothing. Nothing. And you can't take the best of what the world has and take the kingdom of God and try to marry them together and expect there to be no conflict, no contradiction. There will be. Do you know Christ? And if you know Christ, are you growing in Christ? If you know Christ, are you telling others about Christ? Are you living out that example? Are you concerned about those who are going to face eternal judgment? Is that on your radar that when you see people on a daily basis, they're going to live forever somewhere? Or is it, no, me and mine, we're okay, so I don't worry about anybody else. You can't afford to do that. That's what, not what we're being called to do. We've not been called to get ours and our little nest set, and then everybody else can just die and go to hell. That is not the biblical way. We are to make Christ known because the world is dying and going to hell. And the only hope is the gospel. And we have the message of hope. We have the only message of hope. There was a famous video. I'll end with this. There was a famous video a number of years ago that was popularized all over the internet. There was a, a, one of the magicians from the, the, the duo Penn and Teller, Penn Jillette, a avowed atheist. He makes no bones about that. He made a statement where he had a, he had a video and 
He said that one night after one of the shows, one of their magic shows, um, a guy came forward and gave him a Bible and said, Penn, I know that you're not a Christian, but I am a Christian, and I want you to have this Bible, and I want you to know that I'm praying for you, and I'm praying for your salvation. And Penn said I politely took it, and I politely listened to him. And he said, I didn't become a Christian. And he said, but some people that I know said, weren't you offended by that? Didn't that offend you? Didn't that offend you as an atheist that somebody would come and give you a Bible and tell you that they're praying for you? And he said, not at all. He said, because if you believe that you have the only message that will make someone right with God and that will give you a home in heaven and you will not go to hell. If you believe you have the only message that will accomplish that, how much do you have to hate someone to keep it to yourself? That's from the mouth of an atheist. How much do you have to hate someone to withhold the message that you believe will save their soul. How much do you have to hate them to do that? We want to share that because we recognize that the world is in need of the gospel. What's the gospel? That the world was subjected to sin. Adam sinned. This severed humanity's relationship with God himself. And that God in his great mercy sent Jesus who lived a perfect sinless life. A life that we could not live. He lived it out perfectly. And then died a sinner's death on a cross. A death that every single one of us deserves. Because of our sin, we deserve the cross. And Jesus took our place. And if we receive that gift of salvation, if we surrender our lives to him, Saying, Jesus, I believe you are God. I believe you died for my sins. I believe that if I ask for forgiveness, you will forgive me of sins. And I surrender my full life to you. Then biblically, based on the authority of the word of God, we will be saved. We will be a new creation in Christ. He will give us new want-tos. And we will produce fruit for his kingdom and have a home in heaven with him forever. And then we have the moral responsibility to share that message of hope with others. That's the gospel. Have you made that decision to follow him? Have you surrendered your life to him? If not, let it be today. Time is short. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Don't live any longer as a weed when God is offering a message that will enable us to be wheat, to be fruitful sons and daughters in his kingdom. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you. We thank you for your word. It's not our word. It's not any human word. It's not anything we've dreamt up, cooked up, worked up, written up. It's your word. Your word is truth. Not just true, truth. So, Father, very simply, I just pray 
if there's anybody here today, if there's anybody watching, if there's anybody listening later, and they have never made a true, surrendered, full life decision for you, I pray today would be the day that they would reject their sin, they would turn from their sin, they would turn to Christ alone for salvation, and that you would do that work in them in such a way that they may bear fruit for your kingdom. Father, I pray for those of us who are your sons and daughters, for those of us who will shine like the sun, as you said in Matthew 13, in that final day, where we'll be revealed in in all the glory, not because it's any glory that we ourselves have, it's the glory of Christ that is working in us to transform us into his likeness. It's not anything that we've managed to do on our own. Father, I pray that we would be faithful to make Christ known to the world that is dying, that is lost, that is struggling and suffering in sin. May we be, as you have called us to be, your ambassadors, your disciples, your messengers. Father, may we go out and make Christ known. And Father, we look forward to the day that we'll be with you. But Father, we also cry out and ask you to please show mercy. Continue to show mercy. We know that there is a limit. We know that there is an end. Father, thank you for your mercy. And Father, when when we see those that are struggling and resisting and their opposition is so great toward the things of the kingdom, Father, may our first thought be that person is going to live forever somewhere. And may our first thought be the thought of Lord God. Lord God, deal with their heart. Draw them to yourself. Lord God, give me an opportunity to share. Lord God, may I be bold enough to make an opportunity. Lord God, may we not cast cast a blind eye and turn our back on those who are in need of salvation. Because Father God, that's where we all are. We're either in the kingdom or not. And every one of us who is in the kingdom at one point in time, we were not. And it's only by the gospel that we are brought into your kingdom. Not by our birth, not by our heritage, not by what we think or what we feel, but it's only by a new birth in Christ, by the gospel. Father, may we never lose sight of that, the mercy that was extended to us. May we extend that to others who are in need of the gospel. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.